The subject for the evening talk is the concern with uh, size. Um, with regard to the uh, teachings which take place here in the uh, form of the uh, evening talks, I do think it's um, important and useful to uh, understand the general kind of uh, outlook and uh, spirit in which the teach teachings are being uh, offered and shared. And what I mean by this is that quite often in giving of teachings there are various points of uh, um, interest which focus on a particular point or theme or topic that at times, uh, things are said in an extremely uh, abbreviated uh, form and may be expressed in terms of um, one-liners and also a broad sense of what spiritual life and an awakened uh, life is endeavouring to communicate. And in the course of uh, giving teachings as well as uh, listening to them, um, it is not the intention at all, in fact, that things which are said are for the purpose of feeling comfortable, pleasing, uh, satisfying. The also in the giving of the teachings as well, the teachings also um, don't have the purpose of um, endeavouring to make one's life uh, easier or, or, or either for you to, in this case, agree with things which I say during the course of the evening talk or, in fact, at any other time. So, essentially, I may dare to say, I'm not here to uh, please you and equally I'm not here to please myself. And the point that I make with regard uh, to, to that is that sometimes the teachings, as with any other situation in life, when there, is, there are words passing through the air from one human being to uh, another, that when they find their point of arrival, it may not be what one wishes to hear so be it. <laughs> and you may be wondering, why has he said this? What's this <laughs> leading into? Well, it isn't leading into too much. How could it? Uh, when I was here, um, a, a slight political um, point for a, a moment or two, and I um, use it as an e example and much less as a, a comment on the person that I have in mind. When I was uh, here um, a year ago, there was, from what my memory recalls, a general sense among the kind of circles that a uh, number of us move in in places like this, a general sense of optimism in the air. And this uh, degree of optimism in the air was the 
hope that the past um, political administration was um, in its final days um, after 12 years of uh, remarkable endurance and that a new administration would come in and this brought in a certain, I felt, optimism in the air. And from my perspective on the other side of the uh, Atlantic and as one of your poor cousins one might say, that it seems that this um, um, optimism has um, evaporated as quickly as the fog in your mind on the first and second day. And certain specific situations there, I think, bring us to reevaluate and re-examine a situation all over again. And we have been told, because of the preoccupation with size, the tremendous degree of hype that takes place, that the President of the United States is the most um, powerful man on earth. And this is, I think, part of the hype that takes place. And what I seem to have uh, observed, and perhaps uh, one or two others, that perhaps it's a tremendously huge social fiction, in fact. And what we are perhaps seeing is that perhaps this person is one of the more impotent uh, human beings um, on this earth. And we have seen and witnessed I don't want to uh, labour on this, though I'd dearly love to. Um, <laughs> um, several um, examples of that taking place uh, in recent mon months, the fudging with regard to gays and the, um, uh, the military, the tra tremendous tragedy and the heavy-handedness that took place with the FBI in the WACO, the, uh, the bombing and uh, the killing of civilians in Baghdad, the revenge strategies in Somalia, the threats to use uh, uh, air attack um, in uh, Bosnia, and many other examples which you will be far more familiar with uh, than I am. And I just use it, as I say, as an example here of where there is a kind of an image of an idea and sometimes um, an optimism that takes place and a hope, a, a hope for something genuine and, and decent and clear with vision and boldness to it and sometimes one feels out of that optimism that the effect of it in fact is a pessimism. The effect is that are things so different from what they were one year ago or two years ago. And I introduced, men mentioned that um, not in order as I mentioned earlier where I tried to cover my tracks on this that uh, to persuade you of my uh, uh, viewpoint and opinion, but I'm much more concerned, not with the Clinton uh, administration, but much more effectively, what do we do when we are bombarded with hype and it builds up an image and a hope and a, uh, uh, an idea and an emotion actually within ourselves and then we, what we find is that in that build-up, which we are vulnerable and subjected to as human beings, we keep receiving information which somehow seems to be in dispute. Somehow appears to be in dispute with that hope, that optimism that takes place. And I think the uh, example, uh, and I'm using it as an example, 
or as a possible illustration in recent months of, of that kind of uh, dichotomy that we may find ourselves in. And I just wonder sometimes when we are thinking about changes in life and a number of people in this hall are certainly concerned with change inwardly and outwardly that we still have this uh, latent tendency through the hype, I would say, to look in the wrong direction for where political change is. And I think social, spiritual, political change, we've got to be looking and listening and thinking and wondering and focusing our attention in other ways. Because the system of structure is rotten all the way through. And the pursuit of generalized popularity to achieve a position it, it has such a devastating impact on one's psyche from start to finish the pursuit of popularity to appear nice and acceptable as many many people as possible I think the structure of democracy that works in that way corrupts the psyche and so how can a system which we live in which is to me rotten all the way through produce something which is bold and insightful and visionary and enlightened. We look in the wrong direction and therefore I say we have to explore in creative and imaginative ways in our life, other ways of our being in this world and to be extremely watchful of the hype we perpetuate extremely watchful of the hype which we perpetuate. And if I may say, as a small, and uh, I like to regard myself as a close uh, uh, friend of uh, people here, that this hyping up situation is a, a peculiar problem in this culture. And as a person who will spend several months a year uh, travelling this globe, who will be in three or four continents in the space of the uh, last six or eight months, I would say it's a peculiar phenomena here to hype and to build up and to make something which is untrue. And we do not see how frequently this is done and the, uh, uh, what we give is not what is. And when that happens in that way, of course, I just use the politics as a smaller illustration of this, but also it reverts itself. It's not as though we just build up hopes and expectations and to me things which are false and deceptive and extremely misleading, but also we then reverse that. We turn that situation around upon ourselves, and we do it to ourselves. We build up our own image. We build up the hype about ourselves. We start m trying to make something of ourselves. And the very activity of doing, of trying to make something of oneself, builds one up and the collapse will come just sometimes by a dismissal from one human being to another. can send oneself into a, into a state of despair and confusion and meaningless and purposelessness. Why? Building, building, building and making too much of something. 
Sometimes, you know, looking, we often speak about our relationship to each other and um, important and necessary to do so. But I think we have to look at the relationship we have with the, the megastars that we create and the concept and the illusory idea of greatness in this world. There is no greatness in this world. There are no great human beings in this world. This is an immense social fiction. Somebody today referred very sweetly and very reverentially to the Dalai Lama in one of the small groups. I just want to tell you, as somebody who's had the small uh, uh, number of contacts um, with him over the years, and he and I are speaking at the same conference together in a, uh, next, next month, the Dalai Lama isn't the Dalai Lama. <laughs> and it's about time some people started realizing that. <laughs> Having spent time as, uh, when in my monkhood before um, 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 Time magazine uh, slapped her on the cover of uh, that wretched journal, that Mother, Mother Teresa became a, a megastar. Mother Teresa, if anybody who knows Mother Teresa and had a few meetings uh, with her and has spent time with the, the nuns there. Mother Teresa isn't Mother Teresa. That there's something else that goes on. And we do this in countless other ways. One does it here considerably with people like um, Michael Jackson, isn't it? <laughs> Some and then the language of the hype. Isn't he fantastic? Isn't he great? It's just unbelievable what an entertainer he is. But somebody else could look at him and say, well, he's just moving his legs around. <laughs> but the hype makes something else. One says, what an incredible artist Van Gogh is. Well, anybody knows who lives in any small town. One can see half a dozen, a dozen other um, painters with their paintings on the wall whose work is easily as good as anything that he has ever generated. But the hype. So there's no such things as a great painting or a great artist or a great poet or a great poem or a great novel. It doesn't exist. It's what the mind, what the hype has generated and generated and generated and it reaches the point where there's such a generation of the hype which takes, takes place that people become afraid to say, he's moving his legs. The effect of this, this um, building up, this projecting, this making much of, one thinks, well, what does it matter? I think it matters a great deal. I think an awareness of life to look into the truth of life makes it matter a great deal. I don't think one should ever underestimate that greatness is often um, a point of economic leverage. It's a way for the establishment to make money. I don't think one can ever blind oneself to the combination of that, whether the person is dead or alive. 
I don't think one should ever blind oneself to the other vested interests which have some particular movement to take place to make something and build it up in a way which exploits the sensitivities and the respectfulnesses and the reverence for life of people because somebody is hyped up. The social consequences on many people's lives in a widespread sphere is that people, as I said earlier, turn that upon themselves and feel to be nobody. That is the tragedy of creating these mythological figures who have no true existence. And one sees a, a world, far too much in a way, a world in which one looks at one's life and says, I'm not achieving, I'm not accomplishing anything, I can never produce something great, I've never really done anything worth, worthwhile. And we hear this as rather sad litany taking place of self-criticism and harsh judgments towards oneself. What's it based on? Isn't it going to be based on some form of comparison, some form of model, some kind of image that we are holding somewhere? So I think that there's, a, there's a dynamic, a psychological and emotional dynamic which needs from us a lot of care and a lot of questioning and not being afraid to say, I don't want to subscribe and to give support to this cultural hype that goes on of greatness. I remember 10, 15 years ago, if I may say in this room, speaking on a slightly allied uh, kind of subject. And um, in this case, it was with regard to some of uh, the uh, guru figures that have taken place. And in a rather small gesture to try to get the point um, over, I brought in with me um, a roll of uh, toilet paper. I think one or two people thought I'd really had lost it at that time. <laughs> And basically the toilet paper was simply serving here as a reminder to people of uh, what happens in the lives of these great people. <laughs> and it's probably one of the only genuinely freeing experiences of their life. Please remember the things I said at the beginning of the talk. Just so <laughs> in that sometimes, in our rel relationship to the world of the feeling, the picture, the storyline, and the language, one of the things which also occurs with, with that is a tendency that we sometimes have to actually exaggerate the circumstances of our experience. And we kind of often have the view I think with ourselves and the way that we relate things to other human beings and also in our own thought, that we have the view that the, there's the experience which takes place, pleasant, unpleasant, painful, whatever. And then accompanying that experience is a description of the experience. 
and that the description, the words we actually use, the language, and particularly the adjectives which we use, are an accurate statement of what the experience really is. And we sometimes think that our way of interpreting and deciding what the experience is, is the truth of the situation, is the, the fact of the situation. And what sometimes we haven't appreciated and haven't realized is that the description, the words here that we use, the way we think about it, the way we talk about it, matters as much as the actual experience itself. And we are sometimes prone to having certain feelings or certain experiences or moods or whatever which is occurring to us and then bringing in a rather heavy-handed, uh, an exaggerated form of language which we think that's what it's all about, that's what it's really saying. And when sometimes that's actually questioned by another um, person, we might find ourselves getting quite agitated and irritated. How can you tell me that my description of my experience isn't the way that it is? And we actually get defensive about the way we think we are feeling, experiencing, or what is happening to us. Sometimes it reaches a, a, a much intensified form. And the one small example which um, comes to uh, mind here, I think it was uh, last year, or perhaps the year before, I can't remember, um, Shada and I were um, giving a retreat. And during one of the uh, sitting uh, periods, um, one person, and, and of course the happens uh, regularly on retreats, was going through a um, difficult emotional uh, time. And, as happens sometimes in the meditation uh, hall, some emotion, some tears and uh, crying uh, takes place. And this kind of uh, environment and setting is uh, useful and loving and caring support when a person is going through a hard time. And that may manifest, as I say, in, in tears and crying. After the sitting had ended, most of the people in the, uh, the Dharma Hall at the time uh, left to do some walking practice. And the person's e uh, emotion, in the form of a sobbing in this case, continued. And it was continuing for 5, 10, 15 uh, minutes after the, uh, the sitting. So, uh, Shada and I talked a l uh, little bit together um, about uh, the situation for the person and we agreed that because she uh, was sobbing a great deal, she had put the shawl over her head and it appeared to us that she was getting you know, very much lost in the emotion and one was just, as it were, drowning in emotion. And what we felt was uh, appropriate, a small uh, gesture, was to go with, to make contact with her, Shada in fact went, and to suggest in a, a gentle and supportive way to bring, take the shawl back, just to straighten the body uh, up, 
so that it wasn't getting just lost and drowning in this weeping and sobbing which took place, was taking place. And she was clearly going through a, a difficult period. And uh, Shada uh, went and uh, made the contact and engaged in that. A little while later, the person came to me and her first description of the uh, sensitive and uh, no, very respectful contact that Shada had made at that time with the person was, her words were, quote, unquote, I have never been so abused in all my life. When I heard that, I, the first thought I heard was, lucky you. <laughs> so, see, sometimes there's a situation where there's uh, contact and care and kindnesses and support which is being uh, generate, generated. There's a difficult time and uh, moment which person, whoever, we, uh, may be e experiencing. And then there can come a, a rather hostile or reactive or uh, aggressive uh, reaction to what is taking place, to what we are hearing, to what is being shared, to what is being uh, offered there. And the way that that can show itself is in the intensification of the language of description. I've never been so abused in all my life. So I say, you know, looking at our experiences and the way that we are uh, in touch with what is occurring for ourselves, I would say, therefore, that the way we think, the way we talk, and the way we feel, and the way we sometimes undergo, that's all part of a a package, so to speak, which speak, which is working together. Therefore, the description or the describer and the described matter equally because they're not, in fact, separate from each other. They go together. And sometimes when we look with more care, <coughs> not only at the way we feel, which is important, obviously, but also at the way we think, and the way we use our world <coughs> of words and language, when we address that more carefully and have a genuine and authentic interest to be as truthful as possible as the tradition asks of us, to be as truthful as possible, as caring with the words as possible, then I think there's a possibility to live the truth. and not live in falsehood, not live in hype, not live in notions of bigness and greatness and, and all the illusory and therefore painful consequences of this way of interpreting existence. That's a dream, the dream world full of shadowy uh, characters which human beings conspire to make special they don't exist. They don't have a self-existence. A poem doesn't have its own existence. 
A painting doesn't have its own existence. A piece of music doesn't have its own existence. It exists in relationship to the one who listens and the one who thinks about what one has listened to. And somehow as human beings to be respectful to the truth is to be extraordinary and unusually vigilant in how we speak about a situation, how we speak about others, how we speak about ourselves, and whether or not in the way we communicate we are making something of nothing. So I say <coughs> in all of that, that the truth and the sensitivity to the truth is such that when we have a sense of what that means, that what goes out, as it were, what's the signal, what's the intimation of of that is that when there's a loss of contact with the truth, suffering arises. It projects itself. We either onto situations and circumstances around or upon ourselves. Sometimes, of course, in the immediacy of experience, one says, today, <laughs> the truth of my day has been a miserable day. The truth of my experience in this sitting and in this walking has been a very painful experience. And say, so, yes, let us acknowledge that when it's occurring. But I say, when that experiences are occurring, can I stay steadfast with the bare truth of the experience and not add a single sentence to it which is going to put wood on the fire in the name of putting it out. Not say this is the worst thing that ever happened to me in my whole life. Not say I'll never ever be able to get through this sitting, I won't survive it, I know it. Not to be able to say, my God, the end of this retreat is an eternity away. <laughs> Before I arrived here I didn't believe in God but now I've just started. <laughs> All of this, in, in when there is some uh, sensation which is taking place, some difficult experiences which are actually occurring, you sometimes simply don't pick up and are not adequately conscious of the tendency to start to then make the hype on top of the experience. And we sometimes have through language, have in a way damaged some of our inner potential to be a free human being because of the way we describe ourselves, because of the way we think we are, because of the kind of labels and descriptions which have been given to us or we've agreed or conspired to give ourselves. And then we take that, you know, often, as it often happens, that kind of further step from seeing it just as a label or a description to saying, well, actually, 
this is who I am. It isn't. It's a myth. The description of who you are can't be who you are. How could it? How could a description be who you are? Is a description of the ocean the ocean? So I say if we bring together some interest into all of this, we can provide a tremendous service for humanity, a very liberating service for humanity through dispelling the mythologies which are the curse of human existence, to discover something else which is free of this shadowy, nebulous world of images and hype, either towards others or towards ourselves. And this act, which is an, a reverential act towards life, is a very liberating and freeing one because one has come out of the whole projection of great and less great, important and less important, powerful and impotent. And we see things afresh. And when we see things afresh in that way, the world is put aright by it. May all beings see into life. May all beings be in touch with the truth of things. May all beings be free from the illusory. Let's have two or three quiet minutes together, shall we please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.